0: has set forth the continual prayer that he and Timothy have made since hearing of the sincere conversion of the Colossians by the gospel unto Jesus Christ, and that prayer was centrally that the Colossians might be filled with that exhaustive spiritual knowledge of the divine will especially with regard to seeing its applications to life and with uh, an understanding and a comprehension of the nature of God's will. And that filling, of course, we saw would in turn lead to and promote a way of living their lives that would be suitable to their profession of Jesus Christ. And the particulars of that Christ-honoring walk uh, that were secured by that filling with the divine knowledge were that they would be fruitful in holiness, generally fruitful, not just in one thing, but in many things, comprehensively fruitful. That they would also have an increase in the knowledge of God in who he is and in their relationship with him as their heavenly father thirdly that they would be strengthened with a divine strength a strength uh, answerable to and proportionable to the power of the glory of God and that strengthening that strengthening was specifically so that they could joyfully suffer tribulation with patience so that they wouldn't murmur and so that they could suffer tribulation with long suffering and not suddenly grow angry <clears throat> And fourthly, that they would continually and regularly give thanks to God, particularly with regard to his work in fitting them for that heavenly, holy, and eternal inheritance, the inheritance of the new heavens and the new earth, called here the inheritance of light or glory, which belongs to the saints. And then uh, the apostle describes and lays down something about this, uh, this fitting of them, the way that they would be fitted for this kingdom, was particularly by their being delivered from bondage to the power of darkness. Uh, you will recall they were under a, an ethical and intellectual darkness. They didn't know the truth, and they wouldn't do the truth if they knew it. But they were removed from that darkness and from that dominion of sin and of Satan, and they were transferred to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the Son of God's love, placed under His rule, placed under His authority, because He is the King of the kingdom, the one uniquely loved of the Father. And that brings us up to and through verse 13, which is where we stopped so many weeks ago. Now, in the verses that follow, we have what is, in essence, a new theme, but it's a topic that we've already been touching on in the things that have gone before. Uh, It is the primary theme of this chapter, and this verse is pivotal in introducing it. What we have is summed up in verse 18, that in all things he, that is Christ, might have the preeminence. And the rest of this chapter, at least up through verses uh, 20, 21, are devoted to establishing and showing how it is that Christ has the preeminence in all things. And I said that this verse was pivotal because in one sense it establishes what is the most glorious aspect of Christ's preeminence, which is his unique redemptive work, but then it also continues to describe something of how the people of God were delivered from the bondage and misery of the power of darkness. And in verse 14... In whom we have the redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness or remission of sins. We have in verse 14, uh, honestly, a theological gold mine. All that I could say merely scratches the surface of this truth that is set forth here. It is rich and deep, it is really a treasure heap for us to continually again and again dig in. But it's not merely a playground for people inclined to theology. It is really the heart of the gospel. And in this verse we have, in just a few words, what is the answer to the most important question that any man ever has to deal with, any sinful person ever has to deal with in the course of their life, how is it that a guilty sinner, which is what we are, can be justified before a righteous and holy God? How is it that you and I can be justified before a righteous and holy God? How can we be found clean and in God's sight, when we are clothed with sin. And please understand, this is not a doctrine that is important only to adults, only to grown people or old people. It's important to children, too, even little children, even the littlest children. We are all sinners. We all must find a way in which we can stand before God and have our sins not be seen. And this verse I propose to you sets forth that way. Now there are two big theological words in this verse, and that is the center of the text. We have this word redemption, and then we have this word forgiveness or remission. And we're going to talk about the first part of the verse today, in whom we have the redemption through his blood. Now, this word redemption in the scriptures is used really in two ways. Sometimes it's used in a very broad way, not a, very, not a theological way at all. And it just means to be delivered, to deliver someone. Uh, for example... It's any deliverance from misery or bondage. Uh, It's to escape. It's to be set free. Acts 7.35. This Moses, God did send to be a ruler and deliverer. He brought them out. Of course, you know about the state of Israel in Egypt, how they were in bondage. They were slaves to the Egyptians. They were imprisoned there. They couldn't leave. Now, Moses didn't do anything. Uh, so he didn't, he didn't die for them. He didn't pay a ransom for them. He didn't do anything like that. He just, he was a leader appointed by God to lead their deliverance out of this condition of slavery. And that's a very general usage. But when this word is used about the work of the Lord Jesus, it has a very particular meaning, a very strictly literal meaning. And it means when it is used in this sense to deliver someone from captivity or from a misery of some kind by the payment of a ransom or a price. Here is a man who owes a great debt which he cannot pay. And in the old days, they used to uh, have what was called debtor's prison, which meant that if you couldn't pay your debts, they didn't send you another credit card and invite you to incur more. They put you in prison. Here's a man who owes a great debt and he's sitting in prison and he doesn't have a penny to pay it with. How's he going to get out? Here comes along someone else, pays his debt, ransoms him, pays the the one to whom he owes the debt. And of course, then he's let out of prison. He doesn't owe any money anymore. He's free. He's He's been redeemed by the payment of his debt. Or, in perhaps a more... A closer example, here is a man guilty of some heinous crime. He is indebted to, he will certainly be punished, because by his crime he is indebted to justice, and justice must be satisfied with some punishment. Justice must be done, we say. Either he must pay for his crime by receiving punishment himself, or he must be ransomed by some other way, some other person, satisfying whatever justice requires for his crime. And that is the concept of this word. To deliver someone from captivity and misery by the payment of a ransom or a price. Now, the very first thing that is implied to us by this concept when applied to us as sinners, is that if we need to be delivered by the payment of a ransom, we must be in some captivity or in some misery. We must be burdened with some debt. What is this misery? What is this captivity? What is this debt that we are burdened with? For we must be redeemed the scriptures hold forth this very straightforward answer. Man has sinned. Man has sinned against God. Man has transgressed God's holy law. And this God is a very just God, a very perfectly just God. And it does not stand with His justice to allow sin... To go unpunished. The justice of God demands a satisfaction for sin. Man then becomes a debtor to God's justice on account of his sin. And this is also not merely a debt, but a misery, a captivity. Punitive justice is what it's called. That's the justice that uh, demands punishment. Punitive justice holds man captive because man is guilty. The guilt of sin has a punishment that will come upon that guilt to satisfy justice. And man is oppressed with that evil. Sin has occurred. Justice must be satisfied. It will be satisfied in the pouring out of the wrath of God upon the sinner the sinner will be delivered to the judge. The judge will hand him over to the jailer. The jailer will take him to the prison, and he will not get out of there until he has paid the very last penny. And when the judge is God, and when the jail is hell, that time of getting out will be never, because man can never pay the last penny of his debt to justice. And that is the state of man. As a sinner, he is obnoxious to God's holiness. He is offending to God's justice. He is captive by being a debtor to the punitive justice of God, and he has guilt hanging over him, showing him that any day now, He'll have to go to court and stand before the judge and receive condemnation because all the evidence is there, it's a mountain, he can't escape. And go to jail and receive the wrath of God in hell as his certain punishment. And the Bible says that this is true of everyone. Everyone. Not just people who've lived for 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 years. Not just people who are close to dying, but even little people, even children, have a need to be redeemed, don't they? Do children stand before God perfect? Not at all. Conceived in sin, the scriptures say, coming forth from the womb speaking lies. If you've ever disobeyed your parents, if you've ever failed to worship God as you ought to, ever lied, guilty, little children need redemption too. And that is the first thing that is implied by our text. But our text thankfully holds forth that something has been done about this. Have all men remained in this estate of captivity and misery? No. Because it says here of these Colossians and of Paul who's writing that we have redemption. God has acted. And the result is that some have been redeemed. God's justice has been satisfied. The debt has been paid in full. Against these Colossians at least, Punitive justice no longer wields its strength. No longer are they oppressed and captive under the guilt of sin. No longer are they made miserable by the knowledge that there is a certain future punishment awaiting all of their sins to satisfy justice. A ransom has been paid, delivering them from that captive misery. And so then the vital question, two questions really... What is the ransom, and how can we get some of it? What great price, what tremendous offering has been made to remove this curse hanging over their heads? What can pacify God's justice? What can, what can satisfy this debt? Well, it's not money. 1 Peter 1.18 Peter writes, You know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. Money cannot buy our salvation. The richest man in the world, if he took all of his goods and gave them to God, could not appease or put away the tiniest part of God's wrath against his sin." All of his riches. What need does God have of earthly riches? Will God be bribed like some corrupt judge? No, it isn't money. It isn't anything corruptible. It's also not the blood of animals. Hebrews 9.12, Neither by the blood of goats and calves did Christ enter in once into the holy place, obtaining eternal redemption. I've truncated the verse slightly, to, uh, in case you know that verse, to, uh, to, to leave out one part and to emphasize another. It wasn't by the blood of goats and calves. The blood of animals cannot pacify God and put away the guilt of sin. The scriptures say that the cattle on a thousand hills belong to God. You can offer them up all day long. And sin is still there. Sin is still there, hanging over your head. The curse is still there, certainly waiting for you. What can the blood of animals do for a man's sin? Nothing at all. Now, people devise other solutions other than these two that I've mentioned. Some people just cover their sin, don't they? Psalm 32 that we sang this morning. They just try to not think about it. Maybe maybe it just won't all happen. Maybe sin isn't quite as big. Maybe I haven't sinned, really. Maybe I'm really a pretty good fellow. And they cover up their sins. And they assure themselves that everything will be alright in the end. But everything won't be alright in the end. And in their hearts they know it. Can we give God something for our sins? Can we do something about our sins? People try all sorts of things. Maybe you could give your allowance to God. Do you think that would help with your sin? No. Maybe if we prayed a whole lot, maybe five six seven eight, ten hours a day like certain fanatics used to do a couple thousand years ago almost a couple thousand there were men who used to go into caves and hide themselves in caves and they would do nothing but pray pray all day long till they fell asleep they get up pray some more going to put away their sins you think that will do it no maybe a lot of people think that coming to church will do it well we, Sunday morning we get up, we put on nice clothes, we take a visit to the church. Maybe every weekend, maybe every other weekend, maybe not any weekend during football season. But we'll go to the church. We'll we'll sing we'll sing songs to God. We'll maybe listen to the preacher, maybe not. Read our Bibles. Is that going to put away our sins? No. Maybe if we say we're sorry, maybe that will do it. Maybe if we apologize, make sure whenever we do something wrong, we we apologize for it. None of these things, none of these things can satisfy God's justice. It doesn't mean that some of them aren't good things to do. We ought to say we're sorry when we sin against someone We ought to pray, we ought to go to church and worship God, but it doesn't help with our sin problem. There's only one thing, one thing that can satisfy God's justice, one thing that can ransom man from the misery and captivity of guilt and certain judgment. Romans 8, 32. He, that is God, spared not his own Son but delivered him up for us all. 1 Peter 1.18, You were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Hebrews 9.12, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. 2 Corinthians 5:22 Him who knew no sin he that is God hath made to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Christ paid the ransom, satisfied the justice of God. He gave his own life as the ransom for many. He became sin. He was made a curse. The ransom was a substitute. Someone else upon whom God's wrath could be poured out. Someone else upon whom the curse could be laid. Someone else of whom punitive justice could exact its debt. Bloody crucifixion The pouring out of God's wrath, satisfaction made, it is finished. In whom we have the redemption through His blood. By means of. Redemption is by means of His blood. Notice that it's not just His death. It's not just that He died. It was His bloody death. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Why? The life is in the blood. When Jesus poured out His blood, He poured out His life. And so the earthly pattern is fulfilled in the heavenly reality. Not a bull, not a goat, not a lamb, but the Son of God as a lamb, slain to once for all end the guilt and power of sin. This brings us to a very important point. Jesus' death accomplished redemption through His blood. You see, people today say a great many things about Jesus, but they very rarely say the right thing. Oh, there are many today who say that Jesus was a very great man, marvelous man, a great teacher, teacher of morality. Jesus came and taught a new law. Put away that old law, that eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Taught a new law about how people should love one another. He was a meek man and a gentle man. Just a humble man who came teaching, teaching people to live in peace with one another. But then there was this terrible tragedy. Bad men, selfish men didn't want to listen to him teaching about how people ought to love one another and live in peace. So a terrible accident happened. These bad men plotted to kill Jesus and they did it. And then Jesus was dead. And what a tragedy it was. And just another case of bad people killing good people and how sad it is. No, Jesus' death was not an accident It wasn't just a tragedy on the stage of human existence, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Acts 2.23 He is the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Not an accident. It was an intentional thing, a purposeful thing, conceived by God Himself. There are others who say, well, yes, but God did it as an example. You see, Jesus was the great example. God sent Jesus into the world, and Jesus showed people how to live. He showed to point men to righteous living. And then when he died on the cross, he showed how people ought to deny themselves their own pleasures. And in, in this, this death on the cross is, it has a tremendous moral influence upon men. They see this death on the cross, and they say... We ought to live like Jesus and be good like him. What a great man he was. And so we're all inspired to live and die righteously as well. There are two problems with that. One is it doesn't work. People all over the world hear about how Jesus died. Jesus lived and died, and it's a tremendous example, and people preach that to, and, uh, to all day long, and people go out and commit wickedness. It doesn't do anything to preach Jesus as an example. And He wasn't just an example. It wasn't just to morally influence people so that God hoped that by seeing Jesus, people might choose good and turn away from evil. Jesus died to accomplish the promise. It was the payment of ransom to God's justice. It was redemption through His blood. Romans uh, chapter 3 Verse 24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood. It's purposeful to freely justify sinners. Also, the book of Hebrews, chapter 9 and verse 15 And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Or to put it in a very simple, straightforward, pungent fashion, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. It was purposeful. And it accomplished its purpose, by the way, and I won't go into that in depth, but it makes sense if we think about it. How just would it be of God? How just would it be of a man? If you were in prison, you owed a debt. I came and paid it, and then you stayed in prison. Would that be just? No, it would never happen. You get out, right? So it is with Jesus. He comes, He pays the ransom, He redeems His people. They're free. It's not just something that's sitting out there, hoping that perhaps someone might avail themselves of it. It accomplishes what God intended to redeem His people. And so we come now finally to the first words of our text, in whom. In whom we have the redemption through his blood. It makes sense that if it's by his death, if it's through his blood, then we can say, in him we have the redemption. The redemption is not merely accomplished by Christ, but it's found in Christ. Now there are a couple of things that this point to. First of all, To bring it back to our context, it points to the preeminence of Christ. Redemption is not in angels. Redemption is not in the law of God. Redemption is not in humanly devised asceticisms or in humanly devised schemes of worship. Redemption is in Jesus Now, this greatly establishes His preeminence. If there's only one way of redemption, one way of salvation from sin, one way to escape this terrible curse for sin, waiting to fall upon every sinner, then that one way, the person in whom that way is, must be very highly exalted indeed. And so He is. Christ is exalted In his being the one, the one in whom redemption is to be found. Christ preeminent by being the source, the accomplisher, the owner of all and redemption that ever there will be or is. The second thing that this points to, well, we've read that redemption is accomplished... We've read that redemption is accomplished by Christ. We've read that the redemption is in Him. But how do we know if or that we can get any of it? We must have to do with Christ and Christ only, in whom we have the redemption through His blood. These words point to Christ as the sole source of salvation. There is no salvation in any other. It is in Jesus and Jesus only. It is not in Jesus plus Moses, as the circumcision would have it. It is not in Jesus plus uh, enlightenment, as the uh, Gnostic heretics here would have it. It's not in Jesus plus some priest or some pope. And it's not in Jesus plus you. It's in Jesus alone. And Jesus only. Not Buddha, not Muhammad, not L. Ron Hubbard, not Reverend Sun Young Moon. You laugh at that, but plenty of people in the world are deceived by that sort of thing. And if God doesn't grant them repentance and enlightenment, they'll go down into their graves and into hell, thinking that L. Ron Hubbard is is their source of salvation. Jesus alone and Jesus only. And finally, this stands as an encouragement to sinners, to big sinners and little sinners, to old sinners and young sinners, because each one of us comes into this world obnoxious to God, under wrath, liable to the curse of the law, and each one of us will go out of this world in the very same way unless something comes between God and our sins, unless the blood of Jesus Christ and His righteousness is interposed between God and our sins, redemption is in Him. How do we get it? How do we get this redemption that's in Him? How do we get to partake of it? Romans 3.24, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely, By his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All right, it's there. It justifies us. How do we get it? Whom God has set forth. God set up Jesus. Everyone can look at him and see him and hear about him. Why? To be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Through faith free justification if we go to him believing, pardon of sin, everlasting life. God set him forth for that very purpose that he might be a propitiation through faith in his blood. You see, a lot of people are like Naaman. Remember Naaman's problem we read about this morning, providentially in our text? Naaman said, what did his servant have to say? He went to Elisha. Elisha said, go dip in the Jordan seven times. Naaman said... There are rivers all over uh, Samaria. Cleaner than the Jordan. He thought it was a a medical cure. You go be into the hot hot spa and you get clean. There are rivers all over Samaria. If I I was going to wash the leprosy off, I'll go back to Samaria. They have clean rivers. The Jordan's a filthy river. Muddy river. The servant said he was offended. He thought that Elisha was going to ask him to do some great thing. That's so what his servant said to him. He said, Master, if, if Elisha, if the prophet had asked you to do some tremendous thing, wouldn't you have done it? Why won't you do this little thing? A lot of people are like Naaman. They hear about this little thing. It's believe on Jesus and receive pardon of sin. <laughs> can't possibly be. If you'd asked me, and people do this, if you'd asked me to go on pilgrimage to Mecca... If you'd asked me to fast 30 days in a row so that I could obtain salvation, if you'd asked me to starve myself to death, if you'd asked me to throw myself off the Empire State Building, if you'd asked me to do some great thing, I might have done it. But some little thing, that I will not do. We mustn't be like Naaman at the beginning, we must be like Naaman at the end prevailed upon to do that little thing. The one thing that God sets forth as the way to be cleansed from our leprosy of sin, everlasting life, it is by believing on the one whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through His blood. May God make it so that each one of us today might believe on Him. Amen.